quarter to three board games podcast for uh, late January 2019. My name is Tom Chick, and I'm not playing Magic the Gathering. Hello, my name is Hassan Lopez, and I am not playing Scythe. And I am Mike Pullman, and I'm not playing DC Deck Builder. Oh, come on, that's a cute little game. <laughs> I've actually never never played it. Uh, it's a yeah, it's uh, just it's less glutted, I think, than that big old Marvel Legendary deck builder. It's just a simple, quick little thing. It's kind of our one of our palette cleansing deck builders over here at Shea Chick. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we get started, Hassan, you weren't here last week. What's going on? You're not just some random guy we brought in off the street. You're a fella who's made a board game I really like called Clockwork Wars, and you did a Kickstarter earlier this year. Tell us very briefly uh, what do you have going right now. Yeah, um, I was able to bust my way onto this podcast by commenting <laughs> on uh, these guys' last board game podcast. And I said, oh, if you ever want to have a designer on the show, boy, I'd love to be on there. Um, yeah, so I should say that I, I'm only really a part-time board game designer. Uh, my full-time gig is a professor at a small liberal arts college, and I really enjoy that. But I also um, enjoy working on game designs on the side. It took me eight years to publish my first board game, Clockwork Wars, which came out in 2015. And I'm always working on something on the side, uh, usually three or four different projects, various stages of design. Uh, we recently funded my second you know, published board game design, Maniacal, also published through Eagle Griffin Games earlier this year. Hopefully we'll deliver that to supporters in June, July. It's a super villain, comic book super villain themed game. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that I can contribute to the podcast by periodically disparaging other designers' <laughs> games. <laughs> Now, uh, now, Mike, you, uh, real quickly, I mean, folks know you from last week, you are actually the only person who is, like, full-time board game job-related. Like, you're the only person who has a full-time job related to board gaming. Tell us, where can we find you from 9 to 5 on weekdays? And it's actually, it's not full-time for me. I, uh, oh. <clears throat> I have a full-time manager, but I am the owner of, uh, me and my wife own uh, the Gaming Goat in the Denver Metro in uh, a suburb called Littleton. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I go in, I was actually there earlier today, uh, but I'm there periodically, but I have a manager that works day to day. So, so Mike, a, when we yeah. spoke before, you were going to do this as a career change. You can't change your careers unless you quit your other job first. I'm uh, trying to gradually <laughs> career change. <laughs> All right. We'll need the other, other career to pay some bills for now. Well, uh, when you guys aren't doing your regular jobs, I presume one of the things you're doing is playing board games. So what we're going to do is talk about what we've played in the last couple of weeks, and we're going to highlight each of us one game from that list to talk about. So to determine player order on this podcast, I'm going to test you guys how handy is a D6 for you right now? How, like, do you have one within reach? No. Ah. <gasps> I don't think so. Oh, oh my do, god, a couple of lightweights. Oh, okay. Whole, I have a whole bunch of D6s. So Hassan, the, the guy who actually <laughs> makes board games, doesn't have a D6 in reach. Uh, Hassan, what, come on. Cyril, are you not sitting someplace where you could like reach into a drawer or a box? Like, How can there not be a D6 near you? 
I know I'm embarrassed. I, I'm in my defense. I am at my office at work right now because it's less likely to be disrupted by uh, seven-year-olds and one-and-a-half-year-olds. So that's <laughs> that's the only reason I don't have a, a die nearby. Okay, well I'm going to roll for you, Hassan. So I got a one. Hassan, you got a six. Mike, oh man, I got a two. All right, so Hassan, you win the uh, player. Hassan, when you did Clockwork Orange, I hate this in board games. Uh, I think a lot of designers just can't help but trying to be cute and clever. What was the rule in Clockwork Wars for who the first player is? <laughs> I believe that it was the oldest player got to go first. Okay, that's like, at least you didn't do something like, hey, the last person to cosplay in a steampunk outfit. Like, at least you didn't do something goofy like that. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm with you, Tom. I, nowadays, I've, I'm kind of curmudgeonly about this. I prefer yeah. it when games just say, do it randomly or however you want to do it. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, so, Hassan, you won the role, so tell us quickly, what are a couple of things you've been playing over the last couple of weeks? And uh, then we'll talk about the one you want to highlight. Uh, sure thing. So I've been playing probably you know two or three different things recently. I'm like you, Tom. I'm a big fan of solitaire board gaming, so mm -hmm. I'm usually playing something on my table uh, that's just for me. But the two that pop into my head from the past couple of weeks are Nemesis, a big box thematic game by Awaken Realms. That's the one I'm going to chat with you guys about. Mm -hmm. And the other one I've been playing a little bit of, and I'm definitely going to play more of, is Keyforge, the, the sort of the big, you know, hot topic card game by Fantasy Flight. And Mike, that's like, do you, Mike, do you currently have in stock any Keyforge decks? We do, actually. Ah! Uh, wanna, starter decks, or starter sets are still really hard to come by, but we do have some decks. Okay, so Gaming Goat in Littleton, Colorado. Get a, if you really need a Keyforge deck, you can exactly. find it there. Uh, so, Hassan, was Nemesis a Kickstarter? Like, I, as a regular guy off the street, can't buy a copy of Nemesis, can I? That's correct, and I, I do feel bad talking about this because I'm going to wax a little um, positive about this game, and, and yet you cannot go out and buy a copy for yourself right now. It's really rude. Rude. I know. Um, <laughs> it was... It, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Awaken Realms, but I, I'm kind of becoming a fan of their work. I think among companies that are putting out big, big box, mini heavy thematic type games, which I am often skeptical of, I think they're doing great work. And they were, you know, they started to get, I think, very well known for Lords of Hellas, which came out a couple years ago, got very positive reviews. Um, Nemesis raised nearly $4 million in February. And then just recently they had that, uh, what was it called? That uh, sort of a King Arthur Grail themed game. Oh, Tainted Grail. That's the right, Tainted. right. Yeah. And that, that did just spectacularly, I think. Mm -hmm. So minimally they know how to run a good Kickstarter. And I, I also, I think they, I think they design good games. Um, so Nemesis is – I did actually – a friend of mine brought his copy over to lord over the over us, his, the little miniatures that are in it. Um, it's Is it a one-versus-many aliens-themed trader game? Right. So it is what we would describe as a – using some jargon, I'd call it a semi-cooperative sci-fi horror game. Mm -hmm. And – it is designed to give you the cinematic experience of being in a space horror movie. It, it really, as about you know, as as far as they can go, they've they've come 
as close as they can get to copyright infringement of the Alien franchise. <laughs> and you know, the the Alien miniatures in it are are rightfully intimidating, and they're very HR Giger inspired. And yet, for some reason, um, they don't seem to be being sued or getting strongly worded letters from any lawyers. So if you have any interest in trying to mimic an Aliens-like experience in a board game, I think this is your best bet. Um, I can sort of set the scene for what the game feels like. I, you have to imagine that at the beginning of the game, you, you wake up in what's called the hibernatorium, and you come out of this deep sleep, and the, the AI-controlled computer is setting off alarms all around you. You look over to your left, and there's an eviscerated body, possibly your spouse, on the floor of the hibernarium. And you, your memory is very foggy. You don't know the layout of the ship conveniently. So one of your first tasks as a crew is going to be to explore the ship, figure out where what the layout of the rooms is, get some better gear, and figure out what the problem is. The, the aliens in the game are called intruders because that's what the AI calls them. I think that's like their one nod to not infringing upon the, the, the franchise. Um, and I, the, in terms of the, the, the basic mechanics, it's a, a combination of what I would call a hand management and action selection game. And I think it does this in a very smooth, intuitive fashion. Every player in the game takes on the role of a different crew member. So you might be the scientist, you might be the captain, you might be the pilot. Each player is given a small deck of cards, which are, some of them are unique to you. Some are common to all of the characters. So, for example, all of the characters are going to have at least one or two search cards, which are, you're going to play those when you want to search a room to try to find some more items. But some of the characters are going to have unique cards, which give you unique abilities. Um, you're going to be playing those cards as well as taking basic actions that are available to all of the characters, such as moving, um, picking up objects, engaging in melee attack, engaging in ranged attack, and so on. And you you have to tightly manage those actions and your hand of cards um, while also communicating with the other players if you're going to survive and succeed in the game. And is the overall objective get off the ship, or is the overall objective something that emerges as you're exploring? Well, I think that's that's where the game, um, I think, really successfully turns it up a notch, in that it is a game with hidden objectives, and they're the they're definitely the beating heart of the game. So, the the way that it works is that at the beginning of the game, each player is dealt two objectives. One's I think called a personal objective, and the other is an objective that comes from the company. And the company objectives tend to be, as you might guess, a little bit more devious and selfish. So a, a company objective might be, hey, uh, you know, come back with an egg if you can. It would be really nice if you came back with an alien egg. Um, whereas a personal objective might be to carry that dead body that you found in the hibernatorium, um, escape the ship with it so that you can give it a proper burial. I think that's actually the name of the objective is a proper burial. And you, you have these two objectives sitting in front of you. You only have to fulfill one of them to win the, to, to win the game. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, multiple players can win the game. So I might fulfill my objective, Mike, you might fulfill yours, and then Tom, he doesn't fulfill his objective, so they'd be two winners in that game. And that, that might turn some players off, but I actually really enjoy it. I like the idea that there can be multiple winners um, in the game. And it's also quite easy for everyone to lose, for example, if the ship blows up. That, mm -hmm. would, that would happen. Um, but the, the secret objectives are creative, they're interesting, and they absolutely create a lot of tension between the players. Um, and there's a fair amount of hidden information in the game that, that jives well with those secret objectives. So if, let's say we're in a mission where my objective is to get the ship back to Earth and survive, and maybe, for example, do a little bit of research, something very straightforward. In that case, I want to make sure that the ship is has its engines working. So there's an engine room where you can check the engines and it's navigating to the correct location. So the navigational system is set to Earth. Those are two pieces of information that are actually kept secret. So if you were go to go to the cockpit and check the navigational system, you can check that information and see where the ship is set to. It might be set to go to the sun. Um, and you also have the capacity to change that navigational system. So if you were an honest person and your goal was to survive, you would say, okay, I'm going to change the navigational setting so that we're now going to Earth, guys. You don't need to worry about it anymore. The problem is that the other players might not believe you. They might think that you have a secret objective that wants you to shoot the ship into the sun and you pop right. off in an escape pod or something like that. So I think that that combination of secret objectives that each of the players is trying to pursue creates... Um, you know, a lot of interesting decision points and a lot of cinematic moments in the game. All right, is there any provision for... Uh, so I'm, I'm reminded immediately of Dead of Winter, the zombie survival game, where somebody... We, you all have objectives you have to fulfill to win. Some of them, uh, some players can turn traitor and become openly antagonistic to the other players. Is there any provision for people to fight and kill each other in uh, Nemesis? Yeah, that's. I think that's a fair comparison, Tom. I, th I think there's a couple interesting things there. So in in Dead of Winter, there's there's always a chance, right, that there's not going to be a traitor in the game. I forget how it, the setup works, but you draw a number of secret objective cards. You throw in a traitor secret objective cards. You kind of mix up the deck, and then you deal one to everybody. But there's I forget like a twenty percent chance somebody might there might not be a traitor in your game. Right. In Nemesis. Um, everybody has these two objectives, and a lot of them are antagonistic. So there might be several people all pursuing pretty, um, you know, vicious objectives. So I might have an objective that's like, make sure that Mike dies this game. And you might be pursuing Whoa. an objective that's like, make sure Hassan dies this game. And then, um, you know, Mike's just trying to do some research and survive <laughs> the ship, right? And and. <laughs> That, that can create a really interesting scenario where Mike suddenly realizes halfway through the game that we're just being total assholes to each other, you know, and that that we're not actually in it for the entire team, but we're just in it for ourselves. The A, a critical dimension to that is that you're not allowed to directly attack okay. other players. So you have to, like, blow them out of an airlock or something like that on accident. That's right. So, like, right. you know, one thing you could do is you craft a Molotov cocktail and you throw it into a room with an alien and Mike. 
um, and you say, well, there was an alien in there. It wasn't, it wasn't you, Mike. And, and, and Mike gets a serious wound from that. You're allowed to do that. And then maybe even you close the door behind him, right? So that he can't escape from the room and he continues to take damage and has to fight this alien all by himself. Right. So you, you have to actually be pretty clever when you're, you're trying to take down other players in the game. How long of a game is it? Like, is it Battlestar Galactica length, or uh, is it Dark Moon length? Is it somewhere in between? How long does it take to sit down and play this? I would say that one of the weaknesses of this game is its play length. And I'm, okay. I, you know, uh, nowadays, and I think I'm, I'm, this is this is most board gamers, to be honest with you. I, I lean more towards uh, not not necessarily super short experiences, but one hour to one an hour and a half experiences. I think that's kind of this nice strategic zone of play for so many players nowadays. Nemesis is is definitely more a three to four hour experience right if, especially if you're playing with a, a larger number of people right now uh one of my issues with lords of hellas is i felt that there were just so many uh expansion shaped holes constantly either on the board or in the game or just places where it felt like something random could be unplugged and plugged in uh because i didn't do the kickstarter so i didn't get any of the the expansion stuff with it um it, how much is that present in nemesis like w when you buy nemesis does it seem like there there's a bunch of spaces for them to sell you additional stuff it feels like a complete package to me as is okay. and i know that they are coming out with a second wave of expansions later this year my guess my feel is that this is a game uh like eldritch horror in the fantasy flight realm where there there is enormous room for expansion in terms of just variety of experience right i i hope that they don't try to cobble on too many more rules so that it becomes a frankenstein because that's definitely right that's a that's a dangerous place to go with any game design i think right now it's a game where uh, there's a lot to explore and every game's going to feel different and then you could throw in um, a fair number of you know additional events cards random things that can happen maybe even new aliens with 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 slightly different rules in battle and that could create more variety in your cinematic experience right uh, i mean this is one of those games to be honest with you that lives or dies based on how you feel about the the so-called Ameritrash style game. I think in best case scenario, right, these games are, these games always come with a ton of components, right? There's like 10 different decks of cards. Um, like for example, in Nemesis, there's three different decks for items and there's major wounds and then there's fire tokens and there's malfunction tokens, <laughs> right? And th that, uh, the, the cynic among us will look at that and be like, oh, there's a classic Kickstarter, right? Like they're just trying to sucker you into pledging $200 because it comes with a ton of shit, right? And I, I totally get that. And I'm, I am skeptical nowadays of big Kickstarters where people just seem to be buying into a million minis without really caring or digging deeply yeah. into what the gameplay is, right? But in the best case scenario, all of that stuff, and there are plenty of examples of this in the tradition, all of that stuff creates a lot of just thematic 
narrative possibilities, right? I mean, that's what all that stuff can do. Is like, oh, in this game, fire played a big role in the story, and that was really interesting. How did we deal with that? Or in this game, you got this major wound where your your leg was hurt, and so your movement was affected. And what that variety of stuff also creates is a lot more rules overhead, right? So again, it, it really has to do with how you feel about so-called fiddliness or clunkiness or rules overhead, how you feel about the balance between player agency and randomness in a game. Uh, I think this game does it does it well. I think it it gives you interesting choices that are meaningful where you can effectively increase the probability of you winning through your choices, but there are going to be random events that can really kick you in the butt. So um, in the first game we played, I, my mission was to steal an egg from the nest and survive the ship. I, I picked up an egg from the nest. A couple of rooms later, um, an event mm -hmm. popped up which said, hey, if you're carrying an egg, the queen shows up, you know? And so the <laughs> queen shows up and that was kind of the end of my story. But it was great. It was, it, it thematically made sense. It, it narratively made sense that the queen got really pissed. I was stealing one of her eggs and she used her tail to decapitate me. I mean, that's totally fine. Um, so is this a game then that a player can be out and have to wait for everyone else to finish playing? Okay, yeah, Tom, you're very astute. You've hit on the other, I think, uh, potential red flag for people, which is there is going to be the possibility of player elimination in the game. And while that's an anathema to most game designers, I do think it works in here. Uh, one reason why I think it works is that the likelihood of you dying and leaving the game is... Uh, it's more likely to occur later in the game. You know, it's, okay. it's more likely mm -hmm. to occur in the last 20 minutes of the game than in the first half an hour. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other reason it works is just because it does create that that great tension. I think it fits the cinematic thing it's trying to accomplish, which right. is that people can die in this story. Uh, um, there's a, a legendary aliens game. Uh, I think it's called Legend. Legendary deck builder aliens, whatever. The, uh, there's several of these legendary games. In the aliens one, uh, there is a mechanic for having a trader in there, and players can fight each other. And the first player to die gets a deck of cards where then he or she gets to play as the aliens and uh, gets to play special powers. So your reward for getting killed in that game is, okay, now you can play the bad guy, and the bad guys are even tougher. Uh, which right. is an interesting compromise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In Nemesis, I'll be honest with you, they 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 have a set of rules for something similar to that. They seem a little half baked okay. and tacked on. Like, uh, you know, when I died in that game, you know, the game group was like, "Oh, do you want to take over the aliens?" And I was like, "No, no, no. I'm <laughs> I'm happy to actually just sit here and and drink a beer and watch you guys finish the story off. That's fine." Right. right. Uh, Mike, how do you... Yeah, go ahead. I was, was going to say, does Nemesis have any like campaign kind of stuff to con you know continuity between sessions? It, it it comes with a campaign book that I have not looked at super closely. This is the game we played is actually my friend Eric's copy, and he's I think planning to play through the campaign solo. Um, Wait, how can you do that if it's a hidden objective game? I know, I know. I I I think that it is. Your friend a, Eric is insane. What? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think if you play this game or buy this game to play it solo, which you can, you can play it purely kind of as a co-op experience. I think you're missing out on... Where you just ignore your company fun. objective? Is that the idea? Maybe. 
maybe i don't know i don't know how right. it works if you're going to do it solo but yeah you could you could also play through the campaign as a group um each of the missions is going to sort of change up the rules a little bit change up the scenario a little bit Hassan, I just want to warn you. I think one of the reasons Mike might be asking that uh, he got me to buy Betrayal Legacy. I, I didn't want to. He basically forced me to by by explaining how cool this could be. This idea of this campaign, these trader games where there's a campaign that builds up on on the scenarios as you play each round. So, just a fair warning, Hassan, you might end up having to buy a copy of Betrayal Legacy before we this podcast. <laughs> No, I heard you guys talking about that, and I read the the, the comments about it too. It's funny, my group in in general, we've avoided legacy games just because for you know, for so long it's been tricky to get that solid group to yeah. repeat the experience yeah. over and over. You can only hold out for so long, though, Hassan. You guys will give in sooner or later. Yeah. <laughs> but Tom, what about Charterstone? Don't you recommend that over Betrayal or? I, I enjoyed my time with Charterstone, and I uh, – yeah, so I, I don't know if I mentioned it. I, so Betrayal Legacy is currently being held hostage. We've got like a government shutdown standoff where we have one more scenario to go in Charterstone, and I'm kind of over it. I think most of the people in our group are over Charterstone. There's one woman, though, who really wants to finish that last scenario, and she has vetoed us starting Betrayal Legacy <laughs> until we finish Charterstone. So, uh, yeah, I'm – I'm currently angry at Charterstone for getting in the way of my Betrayal Legacy playing time. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, real quick, I want to ask you, too. I noticed you've been playing Lost Expedition. Do you have the Fountain of Youth expansion for Lost Expedition? Yes. Do you know – like, I don't know if you've what printing you've got. When I got Fountain of Youth, the cards were a different size from the base game, and the card backs were noticeably darker than the base game. Is that mm-hmm. is, is that an issue that you had? I noticed it, it. It has not bothered me too much. What? Yeah. I, oh. <laughs> You're being an apologist for bad QA, Hassan. No, no. There, there's no excuse for it, and it really it pains me inside when stuff like that happens. Yeah. But in that game, for whatever reason, I'm probably just because I'm I'm just playing it by myself, and I I'm I'm good at ignoring it. It hasn't bothered me too much. Right. Right. Uh, all right, Mike, are you playing anything that isn't broken or that I can't not – so Hassan is being a total dick here by telling us how cool a game is that we can't get. Uh, are you playing anything – are you going to tell me about anything that I won't be able to get by the time the podcast is over? Uh, no. Good. I think I'm playing is, is out. See, Hassan, why can't you be more like Mike? <laughs> all right, Mike, what do you got? Oh, wait. I forgot how the die roll went. Uh, so, Mike, yeah, I, th- I rolled a one. Yeah. You go next, yep, Mike. I, I got two, so – um, so a couple things I've been playing. Uh, we had a kind of late holiday thing over the weekend, so we played some more party and casual games. Uh, we played a fun one called Monikers, uh, which is kind of a you know get, it's a hundred thousand dollar pyramid, and then it shifts into charades. Uh, <laughs> then we played uh, the new version of Camel Up. Wait, I just want to say the name yeah. Monikers. Like, I, how far down the list do you have to go before you hit the word Monikers? Like, how? To name your game monikers, I just feel that that's not a very commonly used word. Uh, yeah, and one of my relatives bought it. I brought it. I'd never even heard of it before, but it was it was fun for a big group. Do they do any any fancy spelling with monikers, or it's just the actual word monikers? Just the word monikers. All right, fair enough. Good. Uh, and then uh, we played Camel Up, which I had never actually played before. Uh, there was a new edition that came out this last year that I picked up. And that was pretty fun. Very quick game. 
Uh, we attempted to play Dinosaur Island, but only got through a turn before everyone was too tired to keep going. Oh, no, what, because of Dinosaur Island, or it was just late? Or it, was just, a... it was just late. We're going to try again. Okay. Uh, I like... it's, it seems like those colors would sort of shock everyone awake. Like, you, you roll out that game with that bright neon, that would be like a hit of caffeine, I would think. Visual caffeine. Right. Uh, but the game is, you know, it's it's a fairly weighty game with lots of pieces, and there's these different phases, worker placements, so... It's a lot to take in if you're not ready for that uh, right. kind of commitment. That is an interesting uh, conundrum that you have to deal with on a board gaming night is when do you introduce which game? Because right. like some games you have to play early, but it's going to take a long time. Like Nemesis, for instance. You can't do Nemesis after you've already done two games. Like You have to lead with Nemesis, uh, so it sounds like Dinosaur Island is a game you have to lead with. Right, yeah, yeah. and it's, you know, in the playtime set it was... Not too bad, but then just going through explanations and new players, right. and yeah. Right. So we're gonna try that again. Mm-hmm. Mike, I'll, I'll be curious. Yeah. I'll, I'll be curious to know what you think about Dinosaur Island. We've we've played it a couple times, and I think it'd be fun to have a conversation about it. Like, part of me thinks it's really, really a, a brilliant Euro with that's very thematic, and part of me thinks it's it's far too clunky than it needs to be. But I'm I'm curious to hear what you say. Okay. Yeah, my, my wife's a big uh, worker placement fan, so that's why it kind of rose to the top of the list. I want to give it another try. So, Okay, good. Uh, and then the one uh, I was going to talk about in detail is Villainous, which is a uh, Disney-themed game. Oh, it is a uh, Disney thing. I was thinking, yeah. am I confusing that with some Disney musical? But it, it okay, so it's a themed thing. So it is uh, uh, up to six players. Uh, we actually played full six, the whole complement of six. Mm-hmm. Uh, an asynchronous game where every player plays a little bit differently. Uh, and you're all playing different Disney villains, from Ursula to Jafar, um, and there's Maleficent. There's there's six of them, uh, but each person has their own uh, little board, and you move around your little marker between four locations. And there's uh, some icons that show you what you're going to do. Um, so each uh, player has two decks of cards. There's a villain deck and a fate deck, and those decks deal with your villain only. So I'm only playing cards on my own board. Uh, for example, I was playing Maleficent. Uh, that's the uh, the evil queen from Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would have cards like curses or bring out uh, some minions to do uh, to, for fighting and that kind of thing. And then one of the actions you can do is a fate action, which lets you play uh, one of the... Uh, there are these white-backed cards, which are essentially heroes on some other player. So, for example, my brother was playing Jafar, and if I played a fate action on him, I would draw uh, one of the fate cards from his area which would be Aladdin and Abu and all those, you know, the good characters that are thematic to fighting Jafar. And then they end up blocking uh, his ability to do things. Uh, he'll create, uh, he'll bring out allies to try to fight them and so on. And what's interesting is each, uh, uh, each villain has a different goal. Uh, for example, one of them was the uh, Prince John from Robin Hood, the classic uh, Disney movie. And all he needed to do is build up 20 power, power being the currency uh, to do your actions. Uh, whereas uh, Jafar was trying to enslave the genie and so on. So it was really interesting that each person has their own goal. Uh, the cards you're seeing on your own board in front of you are only appropriate to the movie it's from. Um, but it's it's a lot deeper than I thought it would be for, for a Disney-themed game. It definitely sounds like because when you mentioned it, I was like, oh, God, Mike's going to tell us about some family game. But this this bit about the asymmetry and the different objectives sounds pretty weighty. Like, that sounds awesome. yeah. Yeah, and it was, we had a good time. Um, you know, it was uh, on the box. It says playtime is like an hour. I think it took more like two and a half. But a lot of it was, you know, just teaching people how to play. Although 
it's not difficult because it's all just icons. Uh, you know, I moved a location, I might gain three power, and then I can play a card on someone else, and then I can, you know, bring out one of my own. So tell me real quick. So you, you talk about playing these cards, and I like how thematic that is. It's the mm-hmm. the villain being opposed by the heroes. Uh, how does it make sure that Jafar only fights Jafar-themed heroes? It's like he's got his villain deck and his fate deck, and you play a card from his fate deck on him? That's correct. So okay. when I when I do a fate action, I pick a player, and I draw from their own fate deck and play on their board. Okay. Then then what is the interaction? What's to keep it from being a game where everybody's fighting down in his own little tableau? Uh, what's the board in the middle where you're all vying against each other? They're actually everyone only has their own board. There is no central board. Oh. Um, you just have, are keeping an eye on other people for how close they are to their objectives. Oh. And then if someone's getting close, I'm going to do fate actions on them to try to slow them down by bringing out heroes to stop their their villain or you know it depends on the scenario, right? So um, there uh, there might be an item that you're looking for in their deck. Um, there's some uh, simple mechanics you might see in Magic: The Gathering, like find this card in the deck and play it. Uh, and then the way the cards lay on the boards, it actually covers up some of the action icons. So when I put a hero on someone's uh, a board, it might limit them. Instead of normally they can do four actions, they can only do two. Ah, and there's a get... great incentive to get rid of the hero then, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Uh, so with six players, uh, it sounds like it's one of those games where everyone's going to gang up on whoever they think is is in the lead. Uh, did did it? Did it slow down a lot with six players, too? Because if everyone's just doing his or her own board in front of them, it seems like you could play this just as easily with two as six. Was there anything that was brought to the table by having more players? So once you get into five and six players, uh, they actually have this uh, token uh, that when someone plays a fate action on you, you get it. And then you're immune from fate actions until someone else gets targeted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's it's smart so people aren't getting ganged up on. I would say that ideally this game is probably going to be like three or four players. Six was a bit much. Right. Uh, from the simple standpoint of someone on the opposite side of the table at the end, I can't even tell what they're doing without right. walking over and asking questions. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and, and rumor has it they're going to have some expansions with different uh, different villains, which would be easy to do because since they're all fairly self-contained. Right, right. Uh, and who were you playing? Millicent, you said? Uh, Maleficent, which and- is the, the evil... Uh, queen or sorcerer or whatever from sleeping beauty what was your objective uh, mine was just to play a curse card in each location so there's four locations uh, and the curses uh, did something like for example um, you can only play a hero with strength four or more here um, but then there was always always a way that people could get rid of them uh, either by forcing me to move an ally there or if they successfully played a hero there the curse would go away so there was ways to stop it now, if 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 someone is basically just pulling cards from your fate deck, mm-hmm. uh, can do they have any control? Like they just do a fate action, then you draw a card, and the card says what to do. Do they have any control or input beyond saying, "Hey, you have to draw a fate card"? Like, can they draw a fate card and then make it do different things based on what they feel would be most effective, or does the card drive the action? So they they get to draw two cards and get to play one of them. Okay. So they do get a little bit of choice. Uh, and then usually they can decide where to put something. So if they draw a hero, um, they can actually say, I'm going to put it on this spot because, you know, it's going to block you from doing a fade action next turn. And because you have to move every turn and there's only four spots, um, you can cover up some uh, possibilities of what they can do. And then they have to deal with that hero to get rid of it and uh, to be able to resume that. Uh, I want to ask for, you some. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, for example, um, 
So Ursula, that's the villain from Little Mermaid, uh, her whole objective is to get contracts on heroes and lure them to her lair. So she has an action that lets her move heroes. So if I block that space where it lets her move heroes, and it's only available on one of her four, she actually can't do or progress towards her objective until she gets rid of it. Right. Uh, now, uh, since this... So I'm a little bit uh, taken aback by the idea that everyone's just playing on his or her own board, that there's no real direct interaction or elbow throwing. Uh, mm -hmm. But this also then makes me wonder, and I'm guessing maybe Hassan is wondering the same thing, is there a way to play this solitaire? Um, I think there is, actually. I need to, uh, you know, I, I have to look that up. I wonder if there's a way to do... You know, where it's just doing random fate cards, essentially. Yeah, because it seems like if, if every little set is self-contained, and you're each kind of playing in your own bubble, but you can kind of reach into someone else's bubble, uh, mm -hmm. that would be perfect for Solitaire, and especially if each of the factions is, is asymmetrical like that. Uh, right. All right. It, do, it, it does sound like that take that, though, and, and sort of strategic take that seems yeah. to be a, a part of the game. That, that can be hard to model in Solitaire. Right. Well, yeah. A lot of times in solitaire, it'll just be it'll it, it won't optimize. You just flip it up, and then you'll do some action. Or but, but yeah, I agree. These things definitely come alive more when there's another person making a conscious decision about how to apply the take that. Yeah. I, I almost wonder if it this would really shine as a two player game where you can right. really pay attention to what your opponent's doing, and yep. and and you know. Sometimes with games like this, it sounds like a great idea to play with six. It's like, oh, I can handle that. Right. Um, people even feel that way about Seven Wonders, right? Which is like, oh, I can play up to seven. But really, you're, some people argue the best, the optimal number of players is three because you're really only ever interacting with your neighbors. Right. right. And then you actually can take their resources and so on. I just right. checked on uh, BoardGameGeek, and it's actually two is the minimum. Okay. Uh, community vote is three is the best. So yeah, so it sounds like the uh, it's not something where they really put a yeah. It sounds like the solitaire isn't really something they were worried about. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I, I was surprised just by how much depth this game had for you know a Disney themed game, uh, mm -hmm. and I had been told that by a few people in the store uh, before. That's why we picked it up to try it. Uh, I was fairly impressed. I want to try it again with probably a smaller group. That is one of the things that I would wonder about this, Mike, is I wouldn't have given it a second thought. I would have just assumed it was some family thing uh, for, like, little kids who saw the m movies and, and enjoyed them. Like, it sounds uh, it sounds like something I would enjoy, which I never thought I'd say about a Disney-themed game right. like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the theme doesn't attract me at all, but I love games that deceptively bring people into the hobby, right? Yeah. Like, you, you buy this for a family member like a niece or a nephew who's really into Disney and it actually has meat to it and that leads them to then, you know, play Ticket to Ride next or whatever, you know. Um, Mike, what are your thoughts on replayability? Like, do you think playing the same villain over mm. again after a while, is it just going to be sort of a dull routine, like you'll know what to do or... Like a solvable, each faction is solvable in a way, yeah. What's interesting is they give each uh, player, each villain, a little book for here's what you're trying to do. So they actually kind of spell out these are the cards you're looking for. If you get this one, it's going to be an advantage. A little strategy guide. Um, I think if you keep playing the same villain repeatedly, it might get a little dull. Uh, but, you know, if, since there's six of them, you're going to get a fair amount of use out of it before you start doing repeats. And then, uh, like I said, there's, there's rumor that there's another expansion with uh, some more villains. Right. Uh, Mike, I'm going to ask you to do something off the top of your head, see if you can do it. It's like naming the seven dwarfs without looking. Who are the six villains in Villainous? Uh, they are Ursula, 
from Little Mermaid, uh, Captain Hook, mm-hmm. Jafar, um, You're halfway. Queen of, the Queen of Hearts, Oh, mm-hmm. Prince John, and Maleficent. Oh, you got it. Very good. I'm not sure nice. I would have been able to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is Camel Up, by the way? So that is, it's a game that's been around quite a while. Um, it is a game where there's these camels running around a racetrack and you are betting on them. <laughs> so it has this cool little uh, pyramid dice rolling thing. You put these different, uh, there's uh, one color dice for each of the camels. There's five of them. And then there's a gray dice uh, for these camels. Uh, they're black and white that run backwards on the track. And uh, every turn you can either, you can buy a ticket saying, I think the red one's going to win this leg. Or I can place a card down, I'm betting this one to win. And you're just earning money based on how good you are uh, anticipating the place. Okay. Uh, What makes it interesting, though, is the camels, uh, the little meeples stack on each other. So if the red one rolls a one and there was a green one in front of it, he just sits on the green one's back. And then the green one, when he moves, brings the red one along with him. That's not how camels work. I I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you guys know, uh, this is speaking of theming that you never thought you'd be interested in uh there's a gmt game and i forget what it's called uh that is not technically nascar themed because they didn't get the license for it but clearly you can tell by the font and the colors and the cars it's clearly uh nascar uh and it's a nascar racing game that that's one of the furthest things from from my interest level i just have no desire to play a nascar theming game but i love how they make it interactive by each time a car moves, it affects the entire pack of cars. So you're playing three cars in a cluster of like 20 of them, and on your turn, you give one of your cars instructions by playing a card, but what your car does is going to pull along or push around other cars. So even when it's not your turn, your cars are being affected by what other people are doing. Uh, And in a racing game, I love that kind of interaction where I'm not just rolling and moving my dude, my dude is being affected when it's not my turn, so one of the things I want to do is position it where it'll go along with the other cars. So uh, I really like GMT's NASCAR game, but I can't remember the name of it. Um, yeah, I can't remember either. Yeah. I mean, uh, Tom, like when when something has a, a thematic disconnect like that, what what is it that gets you to play it? Is it a strong recommendation from somebody that you respect, or is it uh, you know sort of the 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 company's sort of you know profile or what what can convince you to play something like that it's kind of the same way Hassan that I like consider uh, what books to read and what movies to see first first of all uh, what has this person made previously uh, like is it is it a designer with other credits who I really like or a developer uh, that's the first thing and then the second thing like you say a, a recommendation will do it uh, and in the case of this NASCAR game. Uh, GMT sent it to me. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> I, I had it sitting around, and I was like, what? NASCAR? And then just idly, I opened it and was flipping through the rules and thought, oh, this looks like a kind of a cool design. Uh, but generally, uh, I look at, you know, what what is this person's history in terms of games they've made? What Actually, what about you guys? What, Mike, What what? how do you decide what you're going to play? Um, usually, it's based on recommendations. You know, if I see it discussed in the forum... Um, or someone in the store, you know, in recent months tells me that it's something to check out. Like Vilnius, I would never would have given a second look if I hadn't heard multiple customers tell me it's really right. fun. Right, right, yeah. And Hassan, what about you? How do you, how do you decide? You know, I, 
I ask in part because, you know, from a designer perspective, I'm, I am curious to how people make their purchasing decisions, obviously, and, and whether they decide to support a game or buy a game. And I personally am heavy, heavily influenced by the theme of a game. I, it's, it's a big part of what gets me, I guess, into that world, right? Mm-hmm. Like into that, that magic space or the magic circle or whatever, where you're, you, the reality sort of disappears and you're totally engaged with just what you're doing. And so I don't know, you know, there, there are games that the only reason I haven't played them yet is because there's a slight thematic thing pushing me away from them. Um, I guess I might put root in that category. Like root just looks like a game that, mechanically ticks off all my boxes and I'm super curious about it, but thematically it's maybe not drawing me in as much as, as something else might. Uh, why do you hate, why do you hate little forest animals? They're adorable. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's little cats and birds and mice and foxes. Come on, Hassania. Are you heartless? <laughs> I, I'm not antagonistic to it. I'm just, it doesn't <laughs> capture me, but you know what? It, it, that, I confronted this issue a lot with clockwork wars because I, I theme that steampunk, right? And right. that's because I, I like steampunk, but I've met, you know, so many people who just could just care less about steampunk and it just, beyond that it even just turns them off you yeah. know and they're like oh why did you theme clockwork wars steampunk i wish it was sci-fi or anything else i'm like no 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 the theming is really important to it and that's part of why i made the game you know so i do i i always appreciate when designers pick a theme that's that's different and unique and root definitely has that but then you do run the risk i often wonder of 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 people just not buying it not supporting it because it's it's not something that they're interested in personally and that's a trap i've fallen into on both sides is i i get something just because of the theme and it ends up being terrible i talked last week on the podcast about a game called metal dawn i love this idea of a giant robot apocalypse in washington dc and you're trying to stop it with these agents with superpowers that sounds awesome but the game ended up being terrible uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and then on the contrary, you know, like you said, there are some things like that NASCAR game. I never would have given that a second look if it hadn't just been sitting there in front of me and I'd flip through the rules. Uh, yeah, so that that's that's for me can be a real trap as uh, I'll get things because of the theme. Like zombie games. I love zombie mythology. And, and oddly enough, I, there are so few good zombie games because I don't think it lends itself very well to 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 board gaming in a way. Like the, the stuff that makes zombie movies and zombie video games appealing i don't think generally translates very well to board games so i find myself getting a bunch of crap tiny epic zombies for instance i love the tiny epic series i recently bought tiny epic zombies because yeah it's a cool zombie game and it's terrible (laughs) so Uh, yeah 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 yeah. you you played a lot of dawn of the zeds as i recall is that right would you say that's one of the best zombie games and and that's the the uh, herman lutman is a war game designer and he brought into this this war game design approach he he just really understood zombie mythology and what makes it compelling and and how to make the survivors distinct and how to make uh the locations and this ratcheting sense of tension using the state of siege engine uh he just really understood the appeal of zombies whereas this tiny epic zombies game it's it's just like chucking a bunch of or zombicide for instance zombicide there there's like 20 expansions for that and it's all just mindless dice chucking uh, (laughs) which will actually tie into what i want to talk about in a minute here uh but uh yeah so theming is is a trap for me and uh, but so the game that i've been playing a lot lately and i'll just go ahead and uh, segue into this 
the Warhammer theme does very little for me because I associate it with painting miniatures and the tabletop rules and space orcs uh, just don't really do a lot for me and space elves and space marines and I don't get all this stuff about the emperor and heresy. There's just so much lore that Warhammer fans are deeply invested in that I just missed that boat. So a lot of Warhammer stuff doesn't really do much for me. Um, so I I didn't think twice about Warhammer 40k Blackstone Fortress, which is a big old box with a bunch of miniatures, you know, like 100, 120 bucks, whatever. It's super expensive. Uh, and you look at pictures of it, and it's just little miniatures walking around on tiles, and there's dice and it seems like one of those games you just run around and punch something's hit points. And those are a dime a dozen. And if it's themed well, I could be interested. Um, but Warhammer didn't really do anything for me. So I don't know how it – oh, uh, a friend of mine, and this is on to answer your question, he put it on one of his lists of his favorite games from last year. Mm. So I was like, okay, now I'm curious. Uh, and so I bought Warhammer 40K Blackstone Fortress – which is a co-op, quote-unquote, game, which really I think of as solitaire because there's no hidden information, there's no hidden objectives, there's no trader mechanic. Uh, you just take four characters. Uh, and one of the things I like about it, a lot of times when you play a solitaire game that involves individual characters, uh, there are issues scaling it. Um, like games uh, like, like Gloomhaven, for instance, or uh, anything – Pandemic Legacy, you know, anything that's sort of designed around, okay, there are going to be four characters. And if that changes where somebody wants to play Fantasy Flights games, for instance, somebody just wants to play solo, and they think of that as just playing one character. So the folks who made the board game have to scale that to where it will support just one character. Or what if there are going to be six players, like Mike's Villainous Group? Okay, then they have to scale their design to support six characters. And that sort of scaling, uh, a game can fall apart a lot. Like it can get too easy with six players. It can be too hard with one player. So right off the bat, one of the things I like about what Blackstone Fortress does is four characters, period. If you've got four players, each player plays a character. If you're playing solitaire, suck it up. You've got to play four characters. If you've got two players, each of you get two characters. It even has a rule, too. Okay, well, if you have three players, uh, one of you is going to have to play two of the characters. Everyone else only gets one character. Um, so right away, no scaling nonsense there. Uh, it's also built very much towards – you can do a little one-off skirmish game, but it's built – built very much in a campaign structure where you take your four characters through what's called an expedition. And an expedition can be a series of little challenges like encounters that you resolve with dice and combats where you set up the tiles, you deploy the little enemy miniatures, uh, and then you fight this combat. And after you've finished an expedition, you get prizes based on what you found. You could, Basically, it's money to buy stuff. And maybe in the stuff that you found, you get what are called clues. And once you amass a certain amount of clues, you can then go into one of four, I think they call them strongholds. And those are, you have to flip to the back of the rules, and there's a very specific layout, and there's specific rules for each stronghold. And there are four strongholds, and I haven't looked at them yet, but there are four stronghold artifact cards, which I guess are super powerful rewards you get after you do a stronghold. So the idea is you've got to get the clues to unlock the stronghold, then you play each of the four strongholds, and once you've finished all four of them, there's a fifth uber scenario called Hidden Vault. <laughs> 
and the game comes with a little sealed envelope. It looks like there's probably about three or four cards in it. I can't quite tell, but it clearly says, don't open this envelope until you've beat the hidden vault scenario. Uh, and there's a time limit. If you get, you know, you get 12 expeditions, and if you can't get to the hidden vault after 12 expeditions, you've failed and you have to start over. So it's clearly built towards people sitting down, or a person in my case, and playing multiple sessions to try to reach that fourth scenario and beat it. And it seems very replayable because there's a lot of dynamic setup stuff. Um, there are eight characters, so you can vary which party you take. Um, so my friend who put it on his list, he basically described it as just a quick, breezy, accessible dungeon crawl um, with a lot of dynamic, with a lot of variability. And that it definitely is. Um, so on, on that level, it's definitely working for me. Um, but, you know, talking about Zombicide, where it's just chucking dice and killing stuff, it might be too simple uh, in that the, the characters don't really develop over the course of those missions when you're trying to get to the hidden vault. You play something like uh, like Gloomhaven, uh, and you're improving your characters each time you play. You're getting new cards in your deck, or you're earning new equipment. There's not really a counterpart to that in uh, Blackstone Fortress. Mm. The stuff that you buy between missions tend to be little one-off like cards that you, you, you discard, you use it, and then you discard it. Uh, and your character's stats don't change, really. So that right away is one of the reasons I think people play these campaign games is they want to develop a character over successive games. They want the character to get better stats or better gear uh, or, if in, in the case of a deck builder, a stronger deck. Uh, and there's no counterpart to that in Blackstone Fortress, which then means each scenario is starting to feel very samey in that my characters have their one power, and the powers are cool, and they're very asymmetrical, and each one, you'll get very attached to that character being able to do that one thing, but that's the only thing the character especially is going to do, distinct from what other characters are doing. Otherwise, you're basically just chucking dice, knocking things hit points away, uh, and then surviving to the end of the dungeon. Um, so, so, Tom, if... Ostensibly, the the final missions should be more challenging than the ones you're going through, right? To get there, so if if the difficulty is increasing, do do the do you scale in any way whatsoever to help you with that increased difficulty? So I love that you asked that because that's something that I've been struggling with with a lot of my solitaire games, and that's that's a real challenge for a solitaire game developer: is how do you find where do you find that that challenge level how hard do you make your game because ideally you shouldn't win a solitaire game more than half of the time uh and some solitaire games are happy to err in terms of making it more difficult one of my favorite solitaire i would actually say my single favorite solitaire game spirit island super scalable in terms of difficulty you decide the difficulty and then that influences your score at the end of the game so to really buy into the scaling difficulty in Spirit Island, you have to care about it as a score chase, which some people don't want. They just want to win or lose. Um, I, have a, I have a spreadsheet I keep of all my Spirit Island scores. High five. Yep, <laughs> definitely. I do that with all my Solitaire games is I write down whether I won or lost, the date I played, which characters I was using, because I feel like I need that if the game isn't going to score. Like, I just feel like I need that persistence. Yeah. Yeah. 
I do that for Mage Knight, Nemo's War, and Spirit Island. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a for me, it's a piece of paper folded up in each each box. Yep, absolutely. It's my high score list. Um, <laughs> so what they do in Blackstone Fortress, and I, so my concern here, and I haven't gotten to the Hidden Vault yet, and I'm only about to start my first uh, stronghold, little scripted dungeon. Um, and, and I hate to, when you go to Board Game Geek, when you like look up a rule or something, you'll find a lot of people just jawing about the game and what they feel about it. And I, I hate when I get influenced by this, because some of the complaints I've seen when I'm looking up a rule on Board Game Geek for Blackstone Fortress are people whining about, yeah, this game is too easy. There's no challenge level. And I don't know if that's just some guy who got the rules wrong and isn't playing correctly. Or I don't know if it's some guy who's just has been living and breathing Warhammer all of his life. Uh, I don't know if it's some new solid gamer so i don't quite know how to process that information without any context but it does lodge itself in the back of my head so now that i've played like four or five scenarios and no not lost anybody i'm now worried about yeah, is this game too easy you know am i gonna is this a complaint am i just wasting my time with a game that's never gonna push back and provide a challenge so what the game does to scale the challenge is i think that very idea that your character doesn't get more powerful uh, the, the, the game can add in more difficult things, and rather than you getting more powerful along with the difficult things, you're as weak as you ever were. And not weak, because you're super powerful. Your characters, it's pretty easy to clear the board, but I think the game just pushes back harder and harder as you go through each scenario. Because what happens is, when you set up a random battle, there are spawn points on the battle. And then you flip over cards from what's called an encounter deck. And the encounter deck will tell you, spawn these Imperial Guardsmen, you know, or spawn these uh, Ur-Ghouls, they're, they're Warhammer creatures. And when you first start playing, you take all of the difficult encounters out of the encounter deck. You're just basically, the encounter deck is comprised of level one creatures, you might say, just very basic creatures. But as you do each scenario, each expedition, you then flip up a card that modifies the game rules for every ensuing expedition. And these cards make the game more difficult. And one of the things they do to make the game more difficult is they might make the stuff you buy between missions more expensive. Uh, but one of the main things they do is they tell you to shuffle specific enemies now into the encounter deck. So at a certain point, in addition to these level one creatures, they're going to be uh, beast men or chaos space marines. There's one uber boss who's like a super powerful space marine guy. At a certain point, his encounter cards get shuffled into the deck. So the scaling difficulty here is the dynamic setup starts to include potentially more difficult enemies but your characters don't get the commensurate power increase. They don't get more powerful. So, uh, and, and I think what that's going to do is make it difficult to hit that, that, uh, that fourth, finish that fourth stronghold and then get to the hidden vault. Uh, so it's super simple at first. Uh, oh, and here's one of my issues too, is that the base enemies don't have much character. This is really hard to do in a solitaire game so you're going to spawn a little figure, and how are you going to make that figure do anything other than charge blindly, according to very simple rules, at the closest character? Uh, and I don't know that Warhammer really has a solution to that. Uh, the different characters, each time you activate uh, an enemy figure, you just roll a d20 and you look on a, tab at a table for what it's going to do. And 
in theory, yeah, that should work, but in practice what it means is it's just kind of being jerked around different actions. Uh, you know, it'll run at you, and then it might run away, and then it might take cover, and then it might just suicide into you, and then it might attack twice. Um, it just feels awfully random, and the specific parameters that supposedly give each type of enemy flavor, I'm not convinced they emerge very well. Uh, so it is kind of feeling zombicide where there's just a bunch of characters, a bunch of little minis out there. I chuck dice, knock them off, and then they go away, and I've won. Um, it's, I mean, it sounds... It sounds super cool, to be honest with you. I this is definitely up my wheelhouse. I, games like this, I just love them to death. It sounds like they're just missing a couple opportunities. And do you think you've been spoiled by sort of more complex AI governed yeah. behavior, like from things like Gloomhaven and, and other games? Yeah, yeah, those those decks in Gloomhaven and the way they get seated and the way the monster behaviors start folding in as you raise the difficulty, definitely spoiled me. And that's one of the things too that I I. I wonder if they're banking on is that Warhammer players who were just used to playing the miniatures, this is a way for them to just chuck dice and kill Warhammer-themed stuff with Warhammer-themed characters. <laughs> uh, uh, but it, it, it is super breezy. Like it, It's such a, a slog to get out a game of Gloomhaven and set that up and then get into it. And it's kind of exhausting after you do a mission and you're like, okay, I'm done with this. You finish one of the little battles in... Blackstone Fortress, and you're like, okay, that was super easy. I'll, I'll go ahead and do another one. Uh, it's paced well, and and that's something that I can't say for a lot of these kind of walk dudes around on tiles and punch other dudes games. Is They sort of grind down with a lot of detail, and it's exhausting by the time it's over, and you don't want to do another one. Uh, these seem pretty breezy, uh, so to its credit, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that appeals to me. So one other question I had for you is, I mean... Uh, this is something I think that you especially I'm sure have thought about, which is how do you how do you get excited about a game like this when there are going to be so many um, more interesting, more complex experiences on a on a digital format? So why not play a digital version of something like this? I think I think there even are a lot of Warhammer sort of tactical movement right. dungeon games with much more complex AI and yeah. interesting decisions. I mean, I, I mean, I have my answer to this, but I'm curious to know what your answer is to like, what's this unique appeal to setting up a physical version of this? You know, Hassan, that is an excellent question. And I'm actually going to go last. Cause I want to know what you guys have to say about this. Mike, why would you play? Cause I think we're all into video games as well. Why would you play a board game, Mike, when there could be far more interesting digital implementations of that kind of experience? So I don't play many games solo. So for me, it's going to be doing this with a friend. Um, you know, I know this kind of game, uh, since you're playing all the characters and so on, that you typically, it's very easy to play solo since it's the same experience. Uh, but I just prefer tactile experience anyway. Uh, video games I can look at and kind of stare at and space out quickly. <laughs> but when I have all the cards and the cool components, and then, you know, with this game, you could even go as far as painting them. Uh, that's going to be a lot more fun for me than seeing yeah. it in, rendered on screen. Yeah, the tactile element really is yep. uh, is, is ir irreplaceable. Yeah, Hassan, what about you? Yeah, why would you uh, why would you play <laughs> be playing Nemesis and not some uh, not the al Alien Isolation, the video game, for instance? Right. Well, I th I mean the when it comes to multiplayer stuff, there's an easy answer, which is in in board right. gaming, the the social aspect right. is just so 
prominent and so fun, and it's arguably the reason why we board game. But when it comes to solitaire, I, I mean, I'm a big solitaire board gamer, but I certainly encounter a lot of people who have no interest in it whatsoever. And um, for me, it's absolutely the tactile element. It's the sort of seeing stuff pop three-dimensionally on my table and getting joy out of playing with toys. That's a huge part of it. Um, it's also, I just... I, I really just like having something I can set up on my desk and tinker around with when I have a spare 10, 15 minutes. And nowadays there's the added bonus that if my daughter, Nora, wanders by and looks at it and shows any kind of interest in it. <laughs> and and this is a game, I'm looking at pictures of it right now, this is a game she would be absolutely intrigued by. Um, then, hey, if that draws her into the hobby, that's great. Right, right. So I yeah I, I agree with all that and and the, so the solitaire thing for me and this is uh this is sort of a psychological guess I think I believe this but um I think one of the reasons that we play games and video games is that the narrative element uh, we're basically controlling a story I mean we all enjoy reading books and watching movies and being told a story passively. That's something that everyone can appreciate. But this idea of creating your own story and having control over the progress of that story is what's uniquely valuable in these interactive experiences like video games and board games. What I enjoy in solitaire board games that I don't get in solitaire video games, which I think is most video games, is that element of control is increased all the more when I am completely 100% in control of all of the game's systems. There's nothing going on under the hood that I don't see. You know, there are die rolls and card shuffling and stuff like that. But everything is at my fingertips, and I am driving everything. I am watching the AI work. I am looking at what cards come up. Um, nothing is hidden from me or under the hood. And I love that complete access to all of a game's systems, because that's one of the things I love in gaming is the way that people create systems that interact with each other to tell stories. And when all of those systems are laid 100% completely bare to me, when they're all under my fingertips because I'm physically driving them, uh, that's a uniquely gratifying sensation that I don't necessarily feel when I'm playing XCOM and stuff is running under the hood with the AI and the, the hit percentage chances. And um, So that weird sense of just having complete control over all the systems is something I really like in solitaire gaming. Mm -hmm. um, so the the miniatures aspect also uh, one of the one of my big issue one of the main reasons I had no desire to get into this Blackstone Fortress thing and is it it's a huge miniatures boondoggle it comes with a ton of miniatures and they're all on those plastic sprues you have to put them together uh, and you know I've done my term of service with Kingdom Death Mo Monster Death Kingdom Kingdom Monster Death whatever <laughs> However those three words go together, I, I love that game. I think it's a brilliant system, but you have to also be invested in putting together some very difficult to assemble but beautiful, beautiful miniatures. Uh, and I, you know, I enjoyed doing that, but it's not something I regularly want to do. So with Blackstone Fortress, you've got it, – it, it took me about three hours of just having a movie in the background, listening to a podcast, whatever, of breaking these things off of the sprue, putting them together um, – and that's just not something I normally care to do. But in Blackstone Fortress, I will say, these miniatures are lovely. I mean, it's, it's of course, Games Workshop, so they're going to do a good job. But, uh, you know, the, the 
Kingdom Death monster miniatures are, are lovely in a very specific way, and they're very difficult to put together. Uh, they require a lot of concentration and time, and uh, there's, a, there's an amount of frustration that can go with that when, when you screw something up. But these Warhammer miniatures in Blackstone Fortress, they're beautiful, they are easy to put together, and there's no glue. They all snap together, which is a little amazing to me. Uh, and they, uh, they, they just... They have this. They just have so much beautiful detail. Um, I also recently got a, a fairly older game, which is moving dudes around on a board and punching things, hit points, called uh, Shadows Over Shadows of Brimstone, which is a weird west. It's a western themed, western meets horror themed thing, and it comes with a lot of miniatures. And the miniatures in that are just so. Uh, like derpy they're just like ridiculous goofy little things i mean it's an older game but you can tell they didn't their sculptor bless his heart i mean he tried or she tried or whoever they hired but they just look really goofy and silly and not intentionally it's just kind of amateurish sculpting um so after shadows of brimstone i can really appreciate what great miniatures come with Warhammer 40k Blackstone Fortress? Uh, yeah, so. yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing beats coolness when it comes to you know, like Space Marine and these badasses. I, yeah. My my, I have a, a a copy of Space Hulk Third Edition, and it they're mm. similar types of miniatures. And yeah, I remember cutting them on the sprues, putting them together, and oh, I'm so proud of those minis. They they just right. look gorgeous. Those are amazing minis. I was actually going to ask you, Tom, if you had played that before. Uh, you played what? other 40k board games like space hulk you know what i haven't just uh video games like oddly enough and this gets to hassan's question too about these types of experiences there's a really really good tactical 4x strategy game called warhammer 40k gladius uh relics of war i think i got all the names in there um which is a really good solid tactical warhammer experience and i like it so much that i'm actually reading the little lore snippets in that game and that kind of carries over to this warhammer so i'm like oh yeah i kind of know what some of these things are but the warhammer board gaming stuff tabletop warhammer is completely new to me you know mm -hmm. I, I basically came to it through the relic real-time strategy games dawn of war mm -hmm. um yeah and here's here's the thing though i don't think i will ever there's a time i would have said i will never put together miniatures However, I am now saying, and I believe this as much as I believed I would never put together miniatures, I will never paint these. I am not going that far. <laughs> have you guys painted miniatures? I have, but not in a long time. When, like, when you say not in a long time, like not in two months or like uh, – No, ten years. Mm. I used to play both Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40K, the, you know, the full-on skirmish games. Right. That was a lot of time to paint all those guys. Hassan, what about you? No, I'm not a painter. I, I, I am envious of people who can do such beautiful jobs with them. Um, one of the guys in my group, the, the guy Eric, who brought the copy of Nemesis, he's he's dabbled into painting and he shows real aptitude for it. So his models and he painted all of his models in his copy of Blood Rage and they just came out amazing. And he was generous enough to actually paint my 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 Space Hulk models. So they are they are totally oh, nice. wicked right now. Um, but, you know, I, I was going to say, like, Games Workshop has it seems to me like they've made a real concerted effort in the past few years to kind of reinvent themselves a little bit and break yeah. into the the sort of more casual tabletop market a little bit more and like i know their shade spire did really really well got mm -hmm. excellent reviews what is um, that 
I think Shadespire, uh, Mike might know more than me, but it's it sounds like it's 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 kind of almost like a prelude to this Blackstone Fortress, but it's I think it's one v one mostly. Oh, okay. Um, and but but similar in the sense that it's it's designed for a sit down and relatively casual punch each other in the face experience with really beautiful models that are not that tough to put together. Right. And there's a market for this. Even if the game costs 100, 150 bucks, um, people people want to play this, and it's really wise of them to to branch out from their more traditional, really intense, complicated, you know, yeah. uh, you know, Warhammer and twenty, you know, all that junk that 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 I've always ignored. Well, the writing's on the wall with how popular like Kickstarters are with miniatures and stuff. I mean, yeah, they, there's a there's a big pie for them to try to get a bigger slice of now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and and they just came out with another game uh, on the month or so ago called uh, 40k Heroes of Blackreach. What is that? Uh, it's another. Um, I haven't played it yet. Actually, I actually was just looking at the page. Uh, it looks like it just uses all counters rather than miniatures. What? Uh, <laughs> but they they did this uh, cooperatively with another publisher. I'm trying to remember what it was can't recall uh but that I, I i've been meaning to check that out and is that a solitaire or head-to-head thing that is a head-to-head one okay. one well one of the issues i just because i don't play these cooperatively because i you know i I, I, cooperative games generally uh, I prefer to play solitaire and one of the reasons is and I think this would be an issue with Warhammer 40k Blackstone Fortress uh playing this with four people it seems like there would be a lot of times where 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 a character all a character does on his turn is uh wait like for instance just go into overwatch and and turn your dice to where you can hit something if it walks in front of you uh whereas other players might get to do really cool dynamic stuff on their turn it could just be really erratically paced one of the things i'm very aware of is our players getting bored when i'm playing a game with them and i think a lot of these co-op games where everybody controls one character a lot of players' turns are just going to be super boring, and they're not going to get to do anything fun or exciting, uh, or they're playing a support role, for instance. Uh, so rather than spread that out amongst other players, uh, I'm happy to do all those myself, because when it comes around to a boring character's turn, that's fine. I'm the only one who has to be entertained, and plus I'm playing all the three other characters as well. Uh, so... Uh, all right, so let's see. We've got 40K, Blackstone Fortress, tentative thumbs up. It sounds like super thumbs up from Hassan on Nemesis. Real quick, Hassan, are the Nemesis miniatures painted? Um, the, you had the option of going for what was called a sun drop treatment, which is, I think, kind of like a, a pretty quick wash that they get okay. the minis. And it looks really good. I mean, from my non-professional eye, I thought they did a really nice job with it. My my friend who brought his copy over, I just he showed us one of the little aliens, and it looked like it had a black cool sheen on it. And I was like, oh, that's beautiful. And he was like, yeah, I'm gonna paint it. And I said, wait, why, why are you gonna? It looks just like an like a xenomorph from Alien. Why are you gonna do that? He's like, oh no, this is just the primer. Um, <laughs> I was like, wow, that already looks awesome. Why would you want to paint it? Some of the uh, the miniatures in the Warhammer. So the Warhammer. Uh, we'll talk about this another time. But the Warhammer 40k rules are in like four different books. I my my strong feeling. There's never any reason to have more than one rules booklet. That drives me crazy. <laughs> uh, but one of the books has uh, 
super color pictures of what you're, what color you're supposed to paint everything. It's like a color by numbers, and it, it even tells you the name of the paint. They sound like Warhammer versions of women's lipstick colors. They've all got exotic names. Uh, and it's a diagram of how you're supposed to paint everything. And I look at some of those and think, oh, my God, that is ugly. That's, like, super gaudy. Uh, I, like, if it was up to me, I would never paint these Urgles they're like bright blue and they're goofy looking like i would make that a super black evil looking gray thing or something uh so uh yeah so it comes with a full color painting guide uh which also makes me realize i'm never going to have the patience to you know paint the script in the little scriptorum priest's book or uh, <laughs> or the little insignia on the knight's shield thing. yeah so oh but tom it would look so cool you gotta do it <laughs> <laughs> I've resigned myself because of how cool the miniatures are in Monster Death Kingdom. I've resigned myself. Okay, everything's unpainted. If I ever paint anything, it's just going to be – a friend of mine posted pictures. He doesn't paint stuff of his version of painting, which is just putting a base on something and then painting a couple of highlights on it. And it looked very simple, like like a, just a quick sketch, and it wasn't based on that exhaustive, intricate detail that you use a magnifying glass. And I looked at that, and I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. I could see myself doing that one day. But yeah, n none of this exhaustive detail. You're not going to find that on my miniatures. Uh, and then, so let's see, and then Mike, you would say thumbs up for Villainous. I would say thumbs up. I want to try it with less people next time. Right, right, good. Uh, all right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Quarter to Three Games uh, Board Games Podcast. We do this every two weeks. Come on back two weeks from now, and me, Hassan, and Mike will tell you what we've been playing then, and we'll talk to everyone then. Cheers. Cheers.